You are listening to Pangea Cast, the digital voice of Pangea Church in Seattle, Washington. We are a church that follows in the way of Jesus to inspire others in the way of love. Visit us in person on Sundays or online at seattlepangea.com. Today indeed is Palm Sunday and we're in a series on Revelation and so I was sitting with how do we do these things together? How do we how do we actually come to think about Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a colt in Revelation. And I think I figured out one way to talk about it today. But before I go too far, I, I want to just sort of orient us to what this has been about. We've, we've been trying to just do some broad stroke sort of vision level stuff on how to approach this very interesting and challenging book of the Bible. And we've been doing this throughout the season of Lent. In one way to say, it's okay to enter into those scary spaces of spirituality. It's okay to enter into those challenging spaces within us. And and it's it's an invitation to really um, look at our world through the lens of um, lament at times. I I think Revelation is an invitation to look at our world through the world's pain but also to look at the the world through the lens of the hope that we have because of what Jesus accomplished. And so um, this series has really been kind of trying to do that. So we're not going through every passage. We're not going through all of the things that I would love to walk through because it's so interesting. And every time I teach on it, I learn stuff because it's one of those that's just really, really hard, uh, as, as you've probably noticed. We call it the dragon in the sea mostly because... There is a dragon in this book that we find out is the devil, the Satan, the accuser, the adversary, uh, as one of the key enemies. And we also find out that the sea itself is this space of chaos and evil. And there's even a scene where a beast will emerge out of the chaos, out of the sea. And, um, And at the end of the book, we find out that the sea is no more, that this has been dealt with, that the sea, the image of evil, doesn't exist in God's recreated world. And, and, and so in the Jewish mind, this would be very good news. It wouldn't mean you don't get to go to the beach for sunset views, right? That's not really what the image is doing. It's an image. But what it means is that death and evil and suffering have been dealt with. But as we know, Revelation has in view that there, there is a, a kind of intermediate space of reality where Jesus has accomplished resurrection, has defeated these powers of evil, but that, um, in a sense, these powers are, have had their sentencing, and they're waiting their final judgment. And, and so we live in this sort of in-between space, and uh, what that means is that this book calls us to really evaluate the way that we live our lives together as Jesus people. And so three themes that we've been talking about, of course, we've been talking about how Revelation is, last week we talked about it being a book that invites us to be uncivil. It means that the the way that um, civil pomp and circumstance, civil religion tries to shape our imagination to be complicit with things that Jesus wouldn't want us to be complicit with, we've got to challenge those things. Like when, when we say things like, I pledge allegiance to, Two, and it's not followed by God or Jesus, we, we have to ask a hard question, don't we? What do we mean by those words? 
And, and then the previous week, we talked about revelations and invitation into worship and, and that um, it's actually a counter liturgy. It's a counter way of seeing the world because in that world, there are um, altars to the emperor. There's altars to the gods of the empire. We talked about Roma, the embodiment of this empire. We talked about victory, also called Nike, right, where we get our shoes from. And every time that there was a good sort of conquering of peoples, victory was paraded, right, as the goddess who had made it possible. Have the goddess peace or Pax, same kind of thing. We're going to have peace through our military might. We're going to have peace through the security we create. And we're going to let those people over there know, huh, just wait. We're going to beat you up. We're going to take you down but you're going to love Roman roads, you know? You're going to love our infrastructure we're going to build for you. We're going to make you no longer savages. In the, in the ancient world, they had a word for it, barbaros, which is just barbarian. Maybe you've heard that word before. And so this is what is happening. And so we're called to be people who worship an alternative king. And today is the third theme that we're going to talk about, and it's witness. And we carry some interesting baggage. When we think about witness, I mean, you think about the people on the street corners with these little booklets that, that if you open a page one, it's like, here's your future, and there's flames, you know? <laughs> and then step two, but here's your solution. And it's in, like, clouds, you know? And, and, and you're like, I don't, I don't see that vision of reality in the Bible, you know? Like, like Jesus proclaimed something called the kingdom of God that was breaking into the world and it invited us to live differently, invited us to know um, connection to our God in a way that has been broken and is the, uh, the source of the world's pain. But there was never in, in, in the scriptures this idea that, hey, let's threaten people with hell so that maybe some of them will choose heaven. If you were to look at the entire book of Acts, where there is preaching and more preaching to people who are not, um, who have no idea who Israel's God is, you will not find a single sermon in the Acts of the Apostles where hell is used as a motivator. Very interesting, right? And, and, and what I, I want us to just understand is that um, Revelation kind of does some of those similar things to us. Revelation has these very dark and cryptic images that we've over-literalized oftentimes. And when we over-literalize them, we come up with these really bizarre ideas about how to live in the world as Christians. And fear and violence become inevitable needs and our witness as a result becomes compromised. Witness is a word connected to martyr. If you want to know what witness is in the book of Revelation, you look and you ask yourself, what does it look like to be self-sacrificial and loving like Jesus of Nazareth? And in the first century, they're using this word martyrs because people are having to deal with those questions. They're dying. They're being persecuted. And so that's the story we enter into when we enter into Revelation. Today is going to be very... It's going to be very interesting. Let's put it that way. Um, I, there's a lot of material, and so I'm going to try so hard. Like I do, I, I've been saying this this whole series. Like I'm going to try so hard, and it's, the talks end up being a little long. I know, I know. But um, 
this is like a set of passages that are really hard to get at. I've been studying this for quite a while, and I still like read it, and I'm like, oh, it's really hard to really get. You know what I mean? And so I'm going to have a a few, like after some points, I'm going to have quite a few clarifying quotes that I think help us by different biblical scholars and theologians more than I normally would. But hopefully you find that helpful because by the end of this, I hope you just have handles on what this book is trying to do in these passages. So it is, however, a day where Jesus marches into Jerusalem. So we're not even going to start in Revelation. We're going to start in the Gospel of Luke this morning. And this is the story as Luke tells it. This is in Luke, let's see here, uh, 19. And in Luke chapter 19, what we have is um, this weird moment where Jesus is approaching Jerusalem. And he, he's, he goes to his disciples and said, hey, go tell this one random person who has this random donkey or colt that the master needs it. Okay, cool, Jesus, are you sure? And so they do that, and they end up with this donkey, and they, they put Jesus on it, and that's where we find ourselves. Verse 33, as they were untying the colt, the owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? So I'm thinking they're stealing it. I think they were a little like unsure about how this is supposed to go down, okay? So the owner comes, he's like, what are you doing? Verse 34, they replied, its master needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their clothes on the colt, and lifted Jesus onto it. As Jesus rode along, they spread their clothes on the road. As Jesus approached the road leading down the Mount of Olives, the the whole throng of his disciples began rejoicing. They praised God with a loud voice because all the mighty things they had seen. They said, blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest heavens. Some of the Pharisees from the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, scold your disciples, tell them to stop. He said, I tell you, if they were silent, the stones would shout. As Jesus came to the city and observed it, he wept over it. He said, if only you knew on this of all days the things that would lead to peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. The time will come when your enemies will build fortifications around you, encircle you, and attack you from all sides. They will crush you completely, you and the people within you. They won't leave one stone on top of another within you because you didn't recognize the time of your gracious visit from God. I was looking at passages in the Gospels that had this story. I I usually go to the Revised Common Lectionary, and I go there, and that's where I'm going to try and find some of these texts. But then I was like, but there's that one where Jesus weeps. I'm going to just look at that a little bit. Check this out. Jesus is paraded as a different kind of king, the kind of king that is preparing for his violent execution. He comes to the city that will eventually execute him a week later. 
And as he looks at it, he weeps. He weeps. We only get this a couple of times in the Gospels. We have that other passage, you might remember, where Lazarus has died. And before Jesus does the miracle, he humanizes a moment and weeps and then does the miracle. Because there's something, by the way, about that that reminds us that rather than going first to solutions, we should probably be okay with feeling things. There's something human and holy about that. And so rather than just jump to save his best friend, he sits with the pain that his best friend has died. And then he calls him out of the grave. This is another moment where Jesus is looking at this community that he loves as he comes in as this triumphant king on someone's donkey. And he weeps. And what does he say? He says, this whole thing is coming down. What is he talking about? Well, he is weeping as he comes into the city because he knows within the generation that he finds himself in, the temple will be destroyed. In 70, this is exactly what happens. The temple is leveled to the ground. Jerusalem is ransacked. The Romans come in. They kill, they rape, they pillage. People are fleeing for their lives. And if you were here for the first talk in this series, you remember that likely John, the writer of this wild passage we call Revelation, is among those who flees for his life as this war is ensuing. Friends, this morning I want to talk about a tale of two horses. Maybe you've heard of a tale of two cities. That's a different sermon. Today we're talking about two horses. Jesus, the one who rides the donkey, who is preparing for his own execution for the sin of the world. He is dying for his enemies. And then we'll see another rider on another horse in Revelation, and we're going to start asking some really hard questions this morning. Because if Revelation invites us to live lives of witness, I want to be the kind of follower of Jesus who remembers him going into Jerusalem and weeping for the city But Revelation calls that into question, and we're going to talk about why it doesn't have to, but instinctively when we read it, we're like, what? What about that Jesus, right? And what happens when you have this Jesus, but then you have that Jesus, the violent, ready to tear up people to shreds Jesus, what happens is that we mix up, okay, so I can be following this Jesus sometimes, but like there's other times when I have to defend myself. I have to make sure the world is how I want the world to be. And so I'm going to follow this Jesus because that one has a sword coming out of his mouth and that's pretty awesome or whatever, you know, and like, and like, and, and, and I, I don't know, at some point, if you sit with both of these Jesuses, you might get a little bit confused about who you're following. And historically, The witness of Christian faith has been compromised over and over again because of this confusion. So before we get too far, what is Revelation? What is the last book of the Bible is? Come on, say it with me. A revelation of Jesus to John for the church against the empire during the first century. Yes. Thanks for your enthusiastic following along or not. It's okay. Um, (laughs) Okay. So, so this is 
how we want to just frame what's going on. And of course, it's not just against the Roman Empire. It's against the powers of darkness behind the empire that are empowering it, like we continue to talk about. But we want to root this in John's world. John doesn't write this as a letter to seven churches so that they can hang on to it for 2,000 years so that they can have people like us predict the end of the world in weird, crazy ways. John writes this letter to first century people to talk about first century things and to give them a hope that the world's going to get better. Oh, and next week, we're going to talk about that world a lot. It's going to be good. Easter Sunday is all about that world. And so we have these seven churches, the image that I show each week, just to remind us where we are and what we're doing, of course, right? So these are the cities that the church, that he's writing from Patmos, and he's going to address it to these cities, And um, what we have is this real life on the ground thing, but it's written in cryptic language because Jewish folks during the first century are writing tons and tons of documents from the perspective of a genre of literature we call apocalyptic literature. And um, again, I'm just trying to review. We've talked about this for a whole talk, but, but essentially apocalyptic literature is sort of like a political cartoon. You have a donkey, What's the other one? Uh-huh, yeah, it's the elephant. And if you saw them both with swords in their mouths, pointed at each other, you might think to yourself, oh, we're having civil war. But that would be the wrong interpretation. What it actually would mean is that they are speaking to each other with sharp words of disagreement, yeah? Right? That you've got to get into the political cartoon mentality to understand what's happening in Revelation. So, so I give you all of that as entry point, and here we go. Here's our first passage in Revelation we're going to look at. Revelation 19, 11 through 16. It says this. Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse. Its rider was called Faithful and True And he judges and makes war justly. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and on his head were many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He wore a robe dyed or dripping or drenched with blood. And his name was called the Word of God. Heaven's armies wearing fine linen that was white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword that he will use to strike down the nations. He is the one who will rule them with an iron rod, and he is the one who will trample the winepress of the Almighty God's passionate anger. He has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords. Let's keep it real for a minute. If you take this literally, and when I say literally, I don't mean the way the author intended right here, right? Because that's the kind of literal I'm okay with. I'm thinking just like, if you just take it as it sounds to a 21st century person, it kind of sounds like Jesus should be in a Rambo movie or something. You know what I mean? Like, dude is ready. Like, oh man, Jesus is ready to light up some fools that have gotten in his way. And he's going to use a sword, and he's got an army, and they're all on these beautiful white horses, you know, and they're just going to, you know, just kind of ride in, maybe with coconuts. That'd be funnier. Um, and, and just ride in, 
and obliterate anyone that gets in the way of the success of Jesus' people. Now, I almost didn't share the following quote with you because I don't, I'm very cautious about, I don't want to be an enemy of anyone who's a Christian, even if I, I just, you, you know, can you get where I'm going already? So I'm calling this a quote by anonymous pastor. Most of you, it will click who probably said this. It's anonymous pastor, okay? So um, in Revelation, Jesus is a pride fighter with a tattoo down his leg, a sword in his hand, and the commitment to make someone bleed. That is a guy I can worship. Hold on a second. I just realized I didn't even give you the beginning of the quote. Should we start over? Let's do that one more time. It's even better if you get the whole thing. I just like hit the slide too fast on my computer here. One more time. There was a strong drift. See the different inflection? Like I really try here. Anyway, there's a strong drift toward the hard theological left. Some emergent types want to recast Jesus as a limp wrist hippie in a dress with a lot of product in his hair who drank decaf and made pithy Zen statements about life while shopping for the perfect pair of shoes. It's totally worth going back to, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay. In Revelation, Jesus is a pride fighter with a tattoo down his leg, a sword in his hand, and the commitment to make someone bleed. That is a guy I can worship. I cannot worship the hippie diaper halo Christ because I cannot worship a guy I can beat up. I fear some are becoming more cultural than Christian. Said anonymous pastor. If you really want to know and you don't know, you can come talk to me after church. Can you see how we read this passage really makes a difference to how we understand Jesus? Do we understand Jesus as being the one who rides into Jerusalem on the donkey on Palm Sunday and weeps for the destruction of his loved ones that is coming? Or do we have this picture of Jesus who rides a horse into town, has the tattoo literally down his leg, has a sword, and is ready to make people bleed? That is a contrast that we have to be real about because it shapes everything about how we see the world as Christians. And it justifies a lot of things that are harmful in our world, and we see still it and we still see it happening today. So two horses, two Jesus. That's kind of a foundational question we're asking ourselves as we ask what it means to be a witness to Jesus. Michael Gorman, I've quoted him already. He puts it this way in uh, reading Revelation responsibly, probably the first book I'd hand someone if you wanted to go deeper on this stuff. He says this, there's no actual final battle in Revelation. Why? Because the images of battle are supposed to suggest to us 
the promise and reality of God's defeat of evil, but they are not the means of that defeat. Are you tracking with this? Right? So, so this is an image, and they're using this war metaphor. They're using this violent language, right? And they're doing all this stuff, but it's not about the how, right? Like, it's not like he's going to go in and hack people up literally. We don't need to know about the means of how God defeats evil because we already know the book of Revelation already told us it was a slaughtered baby little lamb, right? How did God defeat evil? He did it by dying for his enemies. And dot, 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 rising over them victoriously three days later. There is no literal battle, no literal war of the lamb for those present at the second coming to join in. No literal pre-parousia. Parousia just means like appearing, right? Future stuff, usually in our imagination. No literal pre-parousia campaign conducted by human soldiers, Christian or otherwise, on behalf of God, Christ's only weapon is the sword of his word. In literary context, we call what the sword is doing, for instance, a speech act. This sword is a image of how the truth of who Jesus is versus the untruth of what the empire claims to be cuts right to the heart of the reality that God is ushering in. They're going to get set up for battle, and then they're actually not going to fight a battle. Isn't that fascinating? They come riding into town, and all they do is they just grab the beast and say, you're done. Peace out. There is no, like, battle. It's set up and never happens. It's very fascinating. Again, when you over-literalize imagery that's meant to be imagery, what happens? You get left behind, <laughs> or if you're one of us who doesn't believe in left behind, you, you're going to get left behind. Sorry about that. Um, no, it's a joke. But, but you, you know what I'm saying? Like, like, like it, it, oh, it just doesn't work, right? And so what do we do with this imagery? I'm going to give you another, another quote. I told you I was going to overquote you today. This is N.T. Wright. He says this, The victory here is a victory over all pagan power, which means a victory over violence itself. I could stop there. The violent imagery actually is the subversive use of the imagery pointing towards no violence, right? Isn't that weird? We can't really picture that. It's so image-soaked. It's so not our genre. We don't write this way. But in the first century, the victory itself is that violence is dealt with and done with. The symbolism is appropriate because it is taken directly from the passages which speak most powerfully and are most regularly referred to in the New Testament of the triumph of the Messiah. Isaiah 11, where the Messiah will judge the nations with the sword of his mouth. Oh, interesting, right? So, so sword imagery of mouth, where did that come from? It's already been used before, right? It's just a recycling of an image. Psalm 2, where he will rule them with a rod of iron. Isaiah 63, where he will tread the winepress of the wrath of God. As John's readers know well by now, 
The actual weapons which Jesus uses to win the battle are his own blood, his loving self-sacrifice. It is hard for us to get into the imagination of the first century hearers of this passage. Why is Jesus covered in his own blood in the passage? Because it's his own blood in the passage, right? I've so many times heard this preached. Look at Jesus is covered in blood. He's got a sword. He's been fighting and hacking up demons and people that are bound to these demons or whatever. The only time there's blood imagery in this, like, this book, it's, it's about the, you may remember the martyrs dipping their robes in blood because it's, it's the self-sacrifice of the lamb that has brought them to victory, right? And so here again, Jesus is covered in blood and you might want to think to yourself, what a warrior. And Jesus says, yeah, I am. I'm the kind of warrior that gets executed by the state for my enemies to liberate the world to the kind of peace, shalom, love, justice that I envisioned in the first place when I created this world and called it very good. The image is not the point. It's what the image does and points us to that's the actual point. And if we don't track with that, we're going to get really confused. I'm going to tell you about people who got confused. I'm going to tell you two stories today about just examples of this going wrong. One comes out of a renegade branch of our own tradition of the Anabaptist movement. Um, early in the 1500s, right, there's, there's this whole Reformation thing going on, and there's the um, Protestants, and then there's the Anabaptists, and there's the Catholics. By the way, all of these groups end up reforming and making up in other ways along the way, right? So the 1500s are really scary times, really confusing times. Christians killing Christians is really one of the worst moments in history. A lot to repent of all the way around. Our tradition, though, was rooted in the Sermon on the Mount, and we believed from the beginning that nonviolence was part of following Jesus. That we don't pick up the sword, we die by the sword, but we don't pick it up. Now, there's this group, though, that decides that the end of the world is about to come. They decide that the millennium is about to be ushered in. And by the way, we, all, we do this, right? Like, we, we get all fanatical about the next thing that's happened. Facebook is doing this to us, by the way. You read Facebook, you hear about a story, and it's like, oh my gosh, this is going to be a climatic moment in the world right now. If you've ever found yourself just worked up by something in the news cycle, I would suggest that it is at a very subtle, 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 subtle level, right? Don't, don't, out, don't quote me wrongly here. But it is that same human impulse that rises up within us sometimes. That this climatic thing, this president being in, you know, now this president, so the world's going to, you know, some of that maybe is true. But we're all kind of like hungry for these like apocalyptic moments that are going to change things. We all want to kind of usher in our own sort of like little bit of millennialism. And I'm not talking about people under 34, um, right? Right? <laughs> Although you're cool, I'm 34, so I guess I'd still count. Um, but, but you get the idea, right? And so, 
So in this movement, a version of this group of Anabaptists decide, yeah, we don't believe that anymore because the kingdom of God is at hand. We're no longer following the Jesus who rides on a donkey. We're following the Jesus who rides on a war horse because it's the end of the world as we know it. Yes, it's the end of the world. Anyway, um, two people got that and it was worth it. And they gather in a place called Munster. And after their prophetic leader, Jan Matthews, is executed for trying to escape jail, sad way to go out, his successor, Jan van Lieden, that's how I'll say the name, it's probably wrong, decides that, you know, our past leaders didn't quite get it. It's the end of the world. The war horse thing is on. It's time to take this city, which will be our new Jerusalem, by force. And so this group of would-be Anabaptists, would-be pacifists turned violent. And what ends up happening? Well, you can probably guess. They don't win, just FYI. <laughs> they don't win. Even people who proclaim that peace is central to the gospel of Jesus can become the violent warhorse riding people when they get Jesus wrong. That's the point of this story. It's a lesson to be learned. Millennial fever messes with us. You know, before I jump to the next story, I want to show you a chart. I promise not to show you charts, but I'm going to. It's fun. It's not one of the scary ones, but check this out. So, so in Christianity, we have this passage in the, the section we're reading today where it talks about Satan being bound for a thousand years and there's all this like language of a thousand years and, and we come up with all of these interesting theories about it. And so like one theory is like post-tribulational pre-millennialism. That's a horrible way to try and talk. It's a lot of ism-ish things. But, but this is like the... Um, one of the views that's similar to like left behind, right? Not quite exactly, but there's a tribulation. And that tribulation, it's going to be in the future. It's going to last for seven years. It's going to be really, really bad. But after the tribulation, there's a millennium. Ten, or yeah, a thousand years of peace. Very interesting, right? So that's, that's one way it's been interpreted. The next one here is pre-tribulational, dispensational, pre-millennialism. It gets better. That's actually left behind theology. And what that means, basically, is a basic same flow of events, right? But they have a whole, like, system worked out, right? There's, um, there's a rapture somewhere in there, and then there's a tribulation, and then there's the second coming of Jesus with the church coming back to the earth. And then there's a millennium. You know, there's all these things. And there's final judgment. Very complicated stuff. Don't read the novels. They'll mess you up. But that's basically what they're basing their ideas on. And then you have post-millennialism, which sounds like a great idea. It sounds like a wonderful idea. That the world is progressively going to become more and more like Christianized. And then when it's finally Christianized, the metaphorical thousand years will be over. Second coming, final judgment, right? Sounds great in theory. A lot of people would hold to a modified version of this. We've just got to spread the gospel to the whole world. And when everybody's gospelized, they'll be good to go. 
And Jesus will be ready to come back because that's how gracious Jesus is. Do you hear how good this sounds? Right? It's missional. It sends us on our way. And, and I, I, there's a lot of good here. Except there's not. And I'm going to tell you why today. Because I, I, I would have leaned towards a version of that, I think, at one point. And then, of course, there's all millennialism, which probably, like, if I had a view, would be closest to it. Just kind of like, this is the age of the church. It's sort of a general period of time where God is using the church to bring forward God's uh, mission and love and generosity in the world. And eventually, God will come back at the end of this metaphorical thousand years. Okay. Still don't think that's right. But there it is. Now, post-millennial, the idea that Jesus will come back when the church finally helps Christianize the world enough was really big in, in the early 20th century. It was huge. It was a huge deal, right? And we have this whole movement that emerges because of it. It's called the social gospel. Anyone heard of the social gospel? Have you heard this language from history? Yeah. And, and the social gospel, like people like us who... Um, maybe have come out of more of an evangelical, conservative worldview. We hear about the social gospel, and we're like, whoa, they were already talking about poverty before we even knew poverty was a thing that we had to deal with as Christians, right? Like, they're, wow, this is like, like they understood way, way back in the early 20th century that we needed a gospel that was social and personal, and I used to be one of these people that just paraded their praises, like, oh, I finally found that way before me there were people doing this that were Protestant, you know, and in my kind of zone of tradition. We don't tell the other half of the story. Why do we have liberation movements in the 20th century of various kind? Well, it's a lot of the social gospel stuff who held to this idea that the world needs to be more and more Christian, to become more and more just, to be more and more ready for Jesus to return. Are you tracking, right, so far? Okay. But what happens when you export this thing from America everywhere else? It gets pretty messy pretty fast. In fact, what we have is a movement that started justifying things like annexing territories and countries because they were savages, and that's air quotes, right? 1899, President, Mc, I think it's McKinley, annexes the Philippines. Why? Because they're savages and they need our American way of life to become whole. It's driven by this paradigm of post-millennialism that we've got to like export and create conditions that are like Christian enough and that people over there don't get it. It gets wild, right? So this continues to be sort of this motivating impulse. And actually one of my professors um, did a whole article on this and I, I want to just read you a quote about it really quick. The social gospelers, including President Wilson, intended to bring about world peace through the spread of Americanism. The president and his religious supporters shared a belief in the absolute superiority of U.S. political practices, values, and principles. They believed, too, that spreading these to the benighted, uncivilized world was the divinely appointed duty of a good American Protestant. In 1917, they saw military force as an acceptable means by which to 
put the world in order and make real their deepest religious hope, a perfect human society, the kingdom of God on earth. And the citation of that quote is wrong because my, my uh, computer apparently didn't press save one last time. The quote should go to Jim Wellman, who's one of my professors at UW. Can you see how millennial fervor and a violent Jesus start giving you a lot of weird permissions for using politics as a way in which you're going to figure out the world? Oh, man. And these are the people that I looked to in the past and were like, social gospel, I can't believe people were doing this stuff. And I mean, it's why there are programs for the poor in America, right? A lot of good came out of it. But when you start to believe that what you are doing is so good that you can use any means to export it, you've used Revelation poorly and you've become a colonialist. Why do we have territories that aren't called states? I would venture to guess post-millennial theology got us there a lot of the time. We can make this place Christian enough. So what do we do with all of this? I want to I try and bring us towards a resolution. But before we can get to that resolution, we have one more passage of Scripture that we need to read together. And it comes out of the same section. This is now Revelation chapter 19. We're going to start in verse 20 and hit a couple of other verses along the way. It says this, But the beast was seized along with the false prophet who had done signs in the beast's presence. Now, remember, again, we, we've talked about this multiple times. There's a land beast and a sea beast, and they represent different functions within the Roman uh, environment, right? The beast being the one who is the military machine and all of that stuff. And then the prophet, the other beast, is the one who says, hey, worship the beast, worship the empire, worship its image. He had used the signs to deceive people into receiving the beast's mark and into worshiping the beast's image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake that burns with sulfur. The rest were killed by the sword that comes from the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds ate their fill of their flesh. <laughs> Pretty gross, right? Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the abyss and a huge chain. He seized the dragon, the old snake, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Then I saw thrones, and people took their seats on them, and judgment was given in their favor. They were the ones who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and God's word. And those who hadn't worshipped the beast or its image, who hadn't received the mark on their forehead or hand, they came to life and ruled with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead didn't come to life until the thousand years were over. This is the first resurrection. There are no literal birds that are going to eat the flesh of God's enemies. There's no literal beast that must be slew. Is that the word? <laughs> slain. I slew the dragon. I slain the dragon. I don't know. I'll take your word for it. I like it. 
slain. I, uh, I want to show you one more thing. And we're going to come to a close right now with this. What we have happening here is you have Daniel 7, another pretty wild chapter in the Bible, and these sections of Revelation sort of complementing each other. I want to show you really quick. So there's like this throne themes in each book. There's the opening of books in each book. Yeah, yeah. And then Daniel 7 is ultimately about the defeat of a beast who previously harmed God's people and God vindicating them. And here we have in Revelation 19, the defeat of the beast. And then in 20, God's people vindicated. Can you see what the passages are actually trying to do poetically, through image, through political cartoon, maybe we would say? They're trying to convey that God's people are suffering, but a day is coming when things will be made right. God's people are suffering, but a day is coming when God will raise up those martyrs. A day is coming when your suffering will not be forgotten as a follower of Jesus. A day is coming when you have followed the lamb in self-sacrificial love for the sake of those who are at the bottom of the pyramid. The day is coming when your sacrifice will be noted and your life will be um, elevated and vindicated as good. That your suffering is not in vain. And one last quote here. This is Richard Bauckham. He says this. This literary contrast shows that the theological point of the millennium is solely to demonstrate the triumph of the martyrs, that those whom the beast put to death are those who will live, who will truly live. Eschatologically, that means like throughout history until the end, right? Okay, sorry, that's a big word. Eschatologically. And that those who contested his right to rule and suffered for it are those who will, in the end, rule as universally as he. And for much longer, a thousand years, the millennium becomes incomprehensible once we take the image literally because John expected the martyrs to be vindicated. But the millennium depicts the meaning rather than predicting the manner of the vindication. You tracking that? The image is trying to point us to the point. It's like when Jesus tells a parable. We don't go and think to ourselves, oh, Jesus is literally talking about someone who was a good Samaritan that he met one day. Jesus is teaching us that loving the other is his way. A parable has a point. This passage has a point. And the point is not that a literal thousand years is coming, a metaphorical thousand years. It's the contrast. We were suffering for a little while, but we're going to be vindicated for a lot of while. And so as we think about these two horses, the question is, who do we Think shows us Jesus the most clearly. I think that Jesus on the donkey is clearly the Jesus that we can literally look to for guidance. And I think the Jesus in Revelation on the war horse is the Jesus we could metaphorically look to for guidance. 
But if we miss those two categories, we're going to go out and conquer the world. We're going to justify our own means. We're going to be the kind of people whose witness is compromised, justified by reading the Bible for our own political gain. So what if we stopped waiting for our own millennial moment? And that's where I want to stop this morning. We, we kind of do this stuff in our own lives all the time. How many of you are waiting for the next big thing that'll finally make you feel like God has vindicated your life? Like all of this stuff that you've been walking through has been really hard, and it has been. Absolutely painful stuff for some of us. But you're waiting around, you're waiting around, and eventually God's going to come in, and he's going to fix it all. Finally, all of my suffering, all of my struggle, all of my pain will finally be vindicated. It will finally make sense. I want to invite us to say, what if that vindication is already present here and now? What if God has already said to each one of us that because of the beauty of Jesus, we don't have to live as though the millennium is somewhere way out there, but that our millennium starts right now because every day within which we walk with Jesus Christ, every day within which we follow him on his donkey into Jerusalem and we weep with those who weep, we pray for those who need prayer, we seek the flourishing of where we are when we we are. We don't need a millennium to usher in our vindication. The millennium has arrived in the person and presence of Jesus here and now. Your suffering, your struggles, all of that can shape the now just as much as they shape that day when maybe you will find resolution to whatever you're walking through. But if we find ourselves living for the apocalyptic future of our lives, we're never going to live in the present of our lives. What would it look like for you to commit to this day, this moment, as messy as it is, with certainly a hope that God's going to sort stuff out, but to not to live as though it's a thousand years in the future, not to live as though you need it to be just like, boom, boom, but that God has given you everything you need right here, right now to live, to love, to be um, animated by the generosity and goodness of Jesus. That's my prayer for us as we move forward. That's my prayer as we move into Holy Week, that we would follow Jesus into Jerusalem. We would weep for the city. And we would be empowered by, yes, vindication is coming, but vindication is here because we can know Jesus here and now, and that's beautiful news.